in the movie, The Usual Suspects, there's a line spoken by one of the characters. And he says, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. There's an awful lot of skepticism about the devil in our world. Is he real? Is he imaginary? Is he a figment of your imagination? Is he simply a a literary device? Is he simply the personification of evil, kind of a boogeyman that we tell people about to get them to behave? Or is he a real, malevolent entity? And for those who view the devil as just a just an expression, just a, a, a figure in literature or religion, I get the point. I don't need a devil to be bad. I'm bad enough on my own. I know that. But if he exists, and I, I believe he does, how convenient it is for him that so few people believe that he exists. I mean, isn't that exactly what you would want people to think if you were known as the adversary, if you were known as the prince of lies, if you were known as a deceiver, wouldn't you want people to think that you weren't real, that you weren't actually there, uh, and that we would be so focused on anything but him that he could sneak in and he could come in unseen, unheard, and weave his little webs in our lives and in our church and get us to blame anyone and everyone but him? 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11 says, We are not ignorant of his schemes. We need to make sure that that is true. And so over the last few weeks, we've looked at Satan's schemes. We've seen his scheme of unforgiveness, and we've seen his scheme of faithlessness. If he can keep us from acting like Jesus, forgiving like Jesus, and if he can keep us from trusting in Jesus, he can hold us down, he can hold us back, and he can claim victory. But there are more schemes than that. And if He can tear us apart, if He can divide us, if He can keep us from experiencing the unity that Jesus died for, He can weaken us to the point that we are ineffective in anything that God has called us to do. And and the church simply becomes a joke. And the world looks at us and says, look at them. They can't even get along with each other. We're looking at Philippians chapter 4 today, verses 1 through 9. If you want to follow along in one of those blue Bibles, it's page 982, Philippians chapter 4. It's a great passage. It's got some of my favorite verses in this passage. This passage has that verse that says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and I'll say it again, rejoice. I love that verse. This, verse, this passage has that, uh, has that verse that says, The peace that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. I love that verse. We've even made songs out of those verses. But when we take a look at it in context, we look at the verses around those, there's something bigger at work here. There's something evil at work. And even worse, it's it's something that looks way too familiar. We start there in in chapter 4, verse 1, where Paul says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, there is no way in the Greek to say brothers and sisters, so we just say brothers and we know that the sisters are are included in that. I just want to let you guys know you are included. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Stand firm, he says. We've seen that before. You know, if you flip back just a few pages and go to Ephesians chapter 6, where we have that passage about the armor of faith, the armor of the Christian, in Ephesians 6 verse 13, it says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God, 
that you may be able to withstand in the day of evil, and having done all, to stand firm. That term pops up over and over again in Scripture, stand firm. It pops up over and over again in moments of decisiveness, in moments of spiritual battle, where we see here is the scheme of the devil, here is the danger, now you, Christian, you stand firm. And what we're going to read here in Philippians chapter 4, it sounds like a personal attack. It sounds like two people that just aren't getting along with each other, but you have to understand it is spiritual. It is an attack. And the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. But you stand firm. Be aware of his schemes. And one of his favorite schemes is to attack our relationships with each other. If you go back to John's Gospel, John presents that, that heartbreaking and, and emotional night before the crucifixion as the disciples meet together with Jesus. And, and he kind of paints this portrait of Jesus' greatest desire the night before He was crucified. He washed His disciples' feet. Do you remember? He, he washed His disciples' feet there in the upper room. And then He asked them, do you understand what I've done for you? He said, I've left you an example that you should wash each other's feet, meaning that you should serve each other, that, that you should be willing to, to take a role of humility and serve uh, your brother or sister in Christ. Then He said, I give you a new commandment. A new commandment I give you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, that you also should love one another. And then he goes on and says, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And then later that night, Jesus went to the garden to pray. And you remember he was sweating drops of blood as he prayed. And his prayer for you and me that night in the garden was that we would be one, that we would experience unity just as the Father and the Son experience unity. Now, if Satan is real, and if he really has schemes... Could there be any greater scheme than attacking Jesus' greatest heart's desire that you and I would experience unity? The numbers are hard to be certain about, but as of last count, there are 41,000 Christian denominations in the world. 41,000. 41,000 times this group of people said to this group of people, we disagree with you and we're leaving. And we're going to start our own church. And sometimes they've been big issues. But more often than not, it's, it's not been big. It's, it's about disagreements that people just couldn't get over. It's about hurt feelings. It's about I'm right, you're wrong. And it is whatever it is, it is 100% counter to Jesus' prayer in the garden, 100% counter to His new command, 100% counter to His example of washing each other's feet, and 100% counter to His heart's desire for us. Paul says, stand firm. And a little later on, he's going to say, rejoice in the Lord always, and I'll say it again, rejoice. And he's going to promise this peace that passes all understanding. But to get from here to there, he has to get personal. We have to get through verse 2. I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Okay, we've got some big words here. We've got some confusing words. So let's take care of the easy words first. Iodia and Syntyche are two women's names. Two women in the church 
there in Philippi. Yodia and Syntyche. Let's just figure it's Eunice and Cindy. Okay? Eunice and Cindy in the church in Philippi. Now, they've been there for a long time. They've been there since the very beginning. These women, these women are leaders in this church, and everybody knows them. And everybody knows that Eunice and Cindy aren't getting along right now. It's, it's the talk of the church. And so Paul says, I, I plead with Ionia, and I plead with Syntyche to get along, to, uh, to agree together. You notice what he doesn't say. I think it's important to notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, Eunice, Cindy's right, and everybody knows she's right, so you're just going to have to suck it up and you're going to have to agree with her because she's right, you're wrong. He doesn't say that. And he doesn't say, Cindy, <laughs> you know, Eunice made a big donation to my last missions trip, and um, we wouldn't have those those pretty curtains in the fellowship hall if it, weren't for, if it weren't for her. So why don't you just walk on eggshells around her and, you know, just, just try to get along. He doesn't, he doesn't say that. He says, I plead with Yodia. I plead with Syntyche to get along in the Lord, to, to agree in the Lord. There's, there's equity here. I entreat them. I entreat both of them. That Some of your Bibles say entreat. Some of your Bibles say I plead with. But he says it twice to show that there is to be agreement, that there is to be equal effort made by both. You know what? You want to hear something weird? You don't have a choice. You're going to hear something weird. Um, back to John 14, when Jesus is talking to his disciples about the Holy Spirit, he says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. He calls the Holy Spirit the comforter. Some of your Bibles might say comforter. Some of your Bibles might say counselor or helper. It's the same word. I want you to be like the Holy Spirit to Yodia. I want you to be like the Holy Spirit to, to Sandy. I want you to agree with each other. I want you to come alongside each other and, and care for each other. I want you to agree. And then he calls the whole church to do the same thing. He does not call the church to take sides. He does not call the church to, to stir the pot. He calls the church to agree. He says in verse 3, Yes, and I ask you also, true companion, Help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Their names are in the book of life. This is not a matter that anyone has lost their salvation because they didn't like the curtains. Uh, this is just a matter of disagreement. We're all still brothers and sisters in Christ here. But he calls the entire church to, to help to help them get along, to help them find agreement. You have a choice to make. You can either help people to agree or you can stir the pot. You know what's in the pot, right? You've got a choice. You can help or you can stir the pot. Jesus' greatest desire is that, is that we would seek peace with one another. Either help people agree or stir, either seek peace or seek division. Jesus' great desire isn't that we would divide up between who's right and who's wrong, but that we would love one another. Relationship is more important than being right. And if we don't see that, then whose work are we doing? Whose schemes are we helping? You know, this, this is about more than just getting along with difficult people. This is about understanding the mutuality of it, what we're all giving together, what we're all needing together. 
This is about understanding that the relationship that you desire with God is tied to your relationships with each other. The relationship you desire with God is tied to your relationships with each other. If you flip back just a couple pages to Philippians chapter 2, we have this great passage at the beginning of Philippians 2 where Paul calls us all to to seek unity and seek agreement and, and seek the same attitude as Jesus. And he paints this beautiful picture of who Jesus is. But he wants us to seek the same attitude as Christ. And he says in Philippians 2, 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being full, uh, being in full accord and of one mind. That phrase, being of the same mind, that's the same word that is used in Philippians 4, 2, where he asks, Yodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord, to be of the same mind in the Lord. In other words, he's not calling these women to do anything that he hasn't already called all of us to do. It's not about their hurts. It's not about their disagreements. It's not about, about just like it's not about your hurt or, or, or mine. It's about our relationship with Jesus. We are his body. We are, his, we are to fulfill his heart's desire. And we respond by giving ourselves to peace. We give ourselves to unity. He goes on in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. You ever wonder why he says it twice? I think he says it once for Eunice (laughs) and once for Cindy. He wants to remind them there is to be agreement in their hearts and there is to be agreement in their rejoicing. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We, we love this passage. There are verses here that go in your refrigerator. They belong in your refrigerator. There are verses here that belong on bumper stickers. When you send a card to a friend, you should write some of those verses down and include those in the card. They're very, very encouraging verses but did you notice it comes in the context of two people who were not getting along with each other and that's important because Paul has not left that discussion behind yet you'll notice it's still here in verse 5 let your reasonableness be known to all some of your Bibles say let your gentleness be known to all it's a tough word there is no one English word that adequately defines the word that Paul uses here it's a tough concept and I hate to describe it like this because while you and I are friends, some of you tell on me when I say things like this. Some of you will tell other people that I have said this. So we just have to make sure that we have an agreement. We're all going to be quiet about what I'm about to say, right? We're not going to share what I'm going to say with anyone. I guess it's going on the internet, so never mind. Um, You know how sometimes you're married to someone? Isn't that a great way to begin a sentence? <laughs> yeah, sometimes you're married to someone and you love that person and you would do anything for that person and you have promised till death do you part. You love that person and, and you will care for them no matter what. But then there's that one little thing that they do that drives you nuts. Am I alone? I'm not alone. You're laughing a little bit? Okay, good. We're all getting in trouble together. Like, maybe they fold your shirts wrong. You know what I'm talking about? And they, like, I folded your shirts. And you're like, but you did it wrong. 
because I have a way that I want my shirts folded. You know I have a way I want my shirts folded. And so I have to go back and refold all my shirts if I'm going to get them done right. Maybe it's the way they chew their food and it just drives you nuts. Somebody's laughing because I know you've got the same thing. Maybe it's that buzzsaw that they run every night in the middle of the night. They got that buzzsaw going and it drives you nuts. And while you're standing over them with that pillow, you say, I did say till death do us part. This is death. No, you don't do that. But instead, you, you put up with it. It drives you nuts, but you've made a commitment and you love them dearly and it doesn't matter. Ultimately, you're like, bless their hearts. I'm going to love them anyway. That's reasonableness. That's the word that Paul is using. That kindness, that gentleness, that reasonableness that you normally reserve for just one person in your life, Paul says, let your reasonableness be known to all. You show everyone that kind of respect. You show everyone that kind of reasonableness. That kind of consideration, that kind of gentleness is usually reserved for just a few close people, but he commands you show it to everyone. You be reasonable with everyone because it's not about their problem or your problem. It's not about their lousy attitude or yours. It's not that they're wrong and you're right. It's about the relationship that you each have with your Lord and Savior. Your books or your names are written in the book of life. And so that relationship with your Lord needs to be seen in your relationships with each other. That. That's why he goes on in verse 5 and he says, the Lord is at hand. The Lord is near. Are you being reasonable with that person the same way you would be reasonable with them if Jesus was standing right next to you? Because guess what? Jesus is standing even closer than that. He's, he's right next to you. The Lord is at hand. If that's not seen in your relationships, don't go looking for it in your rejoicing. If that's not seen in your reasonableness, don't go looking for it and you're rejoicing. And as, as much as you and I love everything else in this passage, like do not be anxious about anything and that call to prayer and thanksgiving and the huge promise of the peace that passes all understanding that guards your hearts and your minds, none of that comes without relationship. None of that comes without mutual respect and reasonableness. And really, it's just that simple. It's this simple. You can't receive peace if you don't offer peace. You can't receive peace if you don't offer peace. I think we would do well to remember verses 8 and 9. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. What's going in here? What's it producing here? And then what's coming out of here? What, what are those things? And what, what, are you, what are the things you find yourself dwelling on? Are you dwelling on the hurts? Are you dwelling on the pain? Are you dwelling on, well, he said this to me, or she said that, or she said that she'd do that, and she didn't do that? You know, you, you can do that all day. You can keep that up the rest of your life and you will never know peace. If you want peace with others, you have to start with the peace that you're putting into yourself. And I'll admit, just like anyone else, there are times when, when I am disagreeable. 
There are times that I am disagreeable. There are times when I am not thinking of things that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, or praiseworthy. And those things aren't going into my mind, then, then those things are not going to be produced in my attitude either. They're not going to be seen in the way I relate to other people. And then Paul points to, in verse 9, he points to his own life and his own example. He points to what I think had to have been a very hard-learned lesson, if you know what I mean. You think about what we know of the Apostle Paul. Think about what we read in Acts and what we know of his letters. Paul was a man who had been accused by others of some wrongdoing. He had been attacked. He had been abused. He had been beaten. He had been imprisoned. And at times, he was mistreated by other Christians. He was mistreated by, by members of the churches that he was serving. And yet, he's able to say in verse 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. There's that promise, peace. The God of peace will be with you. I've never told this story before publicly. I've only shared it with a few people. Many years ago, we went through a pretty rough time, Trisha and I. We were, we were young. It was just her and me and Megan. I had lost my job. I wasn't preaching. I was working a job I did not love. <laughs> Sorry if my boss is listening right now, but I did not love it. And we were all working really hard, and we, we didn't have much back in those days. And to make matters worse, when a preacher leaves a church, he leaves his friends. And he leaves his identity. And so we found ourselves kind of without a home, without friends, working all the time. And we found a church that we loved. We put our membership in that church, and it was a church where we found a lot of grace, and we found a lot of, of acceptance, and, and we, were, we were appreciated there, and, and we really enjoyed that church. One Sunday, we had a big event at church. We had a, had a big day, and we had a big potluck. I love the potluck. And then after the potluck, we all stuck around for a big program that afternoon. And so the whole church is there, and we're all having a good time. And I guess I should mention this, because this is going to surprise you, but back in those days, Megan was only like one or two years old, and this is probably going to surprise you, but back when Megan was little, she could get loud. Uh, I know that's got to surprise you, because she's such a quiet child now, a quiet young lady, but back then, she had a tendency to get loud when she was excited. She she had this ear-piercing scream that just went through you like you would not believe. And if she got excited, she'd scream like that. Well, there we are at church. The entire church, we're having a good time. We're all in the fellowship hall having this program, and everybody's having a good time. Everybody's laughing. Megan's here and laughing. Megan screams out every now and then. Just every now and then. In the middle of it all, one cranky old elder you guys ever had a cranky old elder? Danny? Oh, Danny's back. Uh, I love Danny. One cranky old elder got up, walked up to my family in front of the entire church and said, get that child out of here. You are ruining it for everyone. I was humiliated. Trish grabbed her up, took off. Guess who had to speak that afternoon and had to stay? Sometime later, my friend Larry 
who's also an elder at that church, Larry said to me, I didn't think we'd ever see you again. I thought for sure you were gone. You are never coming back. And I said, Larry, this is my church. This is my family. And we will work it out. Within hours, messages started coming. Calls started coming. That week we were inundated with people telling us how much they loved us, how sorry they were that that had happened, and, and how much they appreciated us. We were, never meant, we were never made to feel more valuable than in the aftermath of that kind of, of, of disagreement and that kind of pain. And by the end of that week, one grumpy old elder came to my house and in the best way that he could, apologized and admitted that he didn't act very much like Jesus that day. And the reason I share that story with you when I've, I've never shared that story before is when I tell you things, <laughs> when I read passages to you and say, agree in the Lord, I'm not talking about a theory that I heard once in Bible college. And when I read things like, let your reasonableness be known to all, it's not just sweet words that I've read in the book and said, you have to do them. <laughs> I've been there. And I wish I could tell you that that was the worst day that we had ever been through as a family, but it's not. We've been hurt. We have been hurt over and over, and there are things that I still struggle to forgive consistently. There are things that I can't forget, but none of them, none of it is worth the price of peace. None of it is worth the price of the peace that I know through Jesus or that I know through my relationships with you. None of this is easy, and none of us are going to do it perfectly, and I would hope that above all else, we could show each other the kind of grace that says, you know, I've had a bad day before too, and I think we can, I think we can move on from here. Our enemy would love to divide us. Our enemy would love to split us up into little factions. He would love for us each to get our feelings hurt and go running off to that perfect church where that's never going to happen again until it happens again. Don't be ignorant of his schemes. I want to close with these words from Ephesians chapter 4. Verses 25 through 27, Paul says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak truth to his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Give no opportunity to the devil. He wants you to think he doesn't exist. He wants you to think he doesn't have schemes. He wants you so focused on your hurt and your pain and your anger don't give him an opportunity. Instead, seek peace and you'll find peace. Please stand and pray with me. Father, we have an enemy. We have an enemy who keeps us hurting and he keeps us hurt. We have an enemy who does everything he can to keep us from being reasonable or behaving like your son. And we know at times this has cost us friendships, but that wasn't his scheme. His scheme wasn't to keep us apart. His scheme was to keep us from you. And we confess in our hurts. We have too often sought to hurt back instead of seeking peace. 
And so today, we confess our hurts and the times when we have inflicted hurts. We know there are times when we have not been reasonable, but today we seek peace. We pray our reasonableness would be known to all. Where there is disagreement, let us seek to come alongside one another and agree in the Lord. We know this isn't easy. We feel the depths of the hurts that have been inflicted upon us, but we lay those hurts before you and ask you to give us the strength to stand firm together. The Lord is near. Let us know his peace. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Please go in peace.